Hey there, boys and girls. Welcome to another edition of the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. Really special edition here on Friday, November 1st is the release of the new movie about Tim Donahue. You remember him, the official that allegedly fixed NBA games, was shown the door by Commissioner David Stern. The biggest scandal in the NBA in terms of officiating and potentially gambling. Well, there's a movie about him. It's called Inside Game about all the things that went on with him and his buddies in this bookmaking that went on 13 years ago. The movie is out. I interviewed Tim and his crew and the producer of the movie, who is cousins with one of Tim's best buddies that was heavily involved in this. And I'm taking some clips from that interview where I sat down with him on a panel in front of Villanova University. And I'm going to have some clips here for you. Inside Game with Tim Donaghy the ref that went to jail for 15 months for what he did in terms of um, bookmaking and illegal bets being made on NBA games. I'll have that for you in a minute. As always, we are presented by Bet Online, your online sportsbook experts. They're the exclusive partner, of course, of Podcast One Sportsnet. Use that promo code Podcast One, get your 50% sign up bonus today. BetOnline.ag. My rant of the week before we get to Tim Donahue is really about the NFL trading deadline. And it was a dud for a lot of people because we talk about the business of the NFL and, you know, juicing up the business of the NFL with a hot stove trading deadline like we have a little bit with the NBA and certainly with the MLB, Major League Baseball. But, you know, it's uh, not much happened with the NFL, although the NFL had a lot of trading going on with Jalen Ramsey for two number ones and then much earlier, Laramie Tunzel for two number ones. We had Leo Williams going from the Jets to the Giants. We had some other trades. Emmanuel Sanders going from Denver to the... Um, Denver to San Francisco, I had a blank for a minute, a little senile moment. And of course, uh, Muhammad Sanu going from Atlanta to New England. So all those trades did happen. I want to talk for a minute about one of the deadline, because what was interesting to me, this was an NBA trade. This was a business of Moneyball trade. Akib Tlaib, the veteran cornerback from the Rams, is traded to uh, the Dolphins, who everyone's talking about tanking and getting the first pick and really starting over. And they have no intention of playing a keep to leave. You know, he'll be waived. He'll be bought out. These are terms you hear with NBA trades where you, where you take on salary to get another asset. And in this case, they take on about four and a half, four point three million. What's left of Tlaib's salary this year in order to get along with it, a fifth round pick. Now they gave us seventh rounder way in the future, which to me has little to no value. So basically they're getting a fifth round pick to take on the asset. We saw a little bit of Brock Osweiler a few years ago where Houston traded Osweiler and a second round pick to Cleveland. So Cleveland would take on the $16 million, get a second round pick in return. Now they're taking on the $4.5 million, getting a fifth round pick in return. It's not the same giddiness that nerds like myself have about the Osweiler trade, but we do have a little bit of a nerdy uh, skittishness uh, in a good way that this happened in the NFL where you're actually seeing Moneyball-type trades, where the Dolphins, who are processing, not tanking, processing, doing what the Sixers did years ago, doing what the Astros have done, just sort of taking on present assets that have little value, like Tlaib, in order to get future assets. Now, a fifth-round pick is not a first-round pick or second. I guess it's not a huge asset, but good for them. Good for the Dolphins 
And, you know, of course they could take on four and a half million dollars. They got the lowest payroll in the league. We're poor proud of spot rack is that it's $138 million. That's ridiculous. $188 million cap. It just shows how NFL teams can play the system and underpay collectively the way the Dolphins are. So they may even have needed to take on four and a half million to sort of help them get to the minimum spending, which by the way, is only judge every four years. Don't get me started on that. So here we go. One trade on the deadline day. It was a money ball NBA like trade. Tlaib goes to the Dolphins who have no intention of having Tlaib on their team. He can still rehab in LA, whatever he's going to do and they'll pay him and they'll pay him because they're paying four and a half million dollars for a fifth round pick you know, if you, is it worth it? I don't know. Is it worth was it worth for Cleveland to get a second rounder for sixteen million? Was it worth when the Eagles uh, took traded Sam Bradford after paying him eleven million dollars? You know, you see what's out there. You see what the market is, and you deal with it. So that's my rant of the week. Uh, another quick one. I got to turn to baseball because the World Series ended last night. It's now Halloween. It ended on Wednesday, October thirtieth, and. You know, I'm born and raised in Washington, D.C. My family's there. My childhood friends are all there. My That's my home. It's just great to see the Nationals. But I can't say that I'm a fan. I can't say that I have this long-lost love for the Washington Nationals. Of course I don't. I never grew up with them. They came like 15 years ago. I was long gone from D.C. as a resident by then. But so many friends and family that have invested in the Nationals these past 15 years and I feel for them. It's just great. And the one name that I think of, and a lot of people, especially I know a lot of younger people listen to this podcast, they're not going to know this name, Shirley Povich. They may know him as the the father of Maury Povich of TV fame. And to me, he's the grandfather of Doug Povich, who was my best friend growing up. So I sort of sat at the heels of Shirley Povich, who is the eminent sports writer for the Washington Post, covered the Washington Senators, that's what they were called before they left and came back as the Nationals later, uh, for for decades, co- covered them back in the, you know, whenever, 1920s with Walter Johnson. Surely loved baseball. Surely loved covering baseball. And I just think of him as now the Nationals win it all. Uh, I was lucky. You know, I hung out with his with his family and they were tired of hearing Shirley's stories as we're all tired of hearing our grandfathers tell stories over and over again. But I was enthralled hearing stories about Walter Johnson, hearing stories about Babe Ruth, hearing stories about Ty Cobb, hearing stories about these great Joe DiMaggio, Mickey Mantle. Um, You know, I sat at the toe of Shirley Povich. So thinking about the Nationals and those like my friends, even my family that got so into the Nationals over the past few years. It's a great thing. And if there's one thing that may can, can galvanize the bipartisan DC uh, or highly partisan DC, maybe it's the Nationals. <laughs> it's Titletown. They got the Capitals, the Mystics and the Nationals, and we don't need to talk about their football team. Okay, let's get into I'm going to give you kind of a blow-by-blow of what I was asking uh, Tim Donahue and the panel about, and then I'll let you hear the answers. Okay? So again, this is my setup. We're going to talk – I did a panel at Villanova University with Tim Donahue, Tommy Martino, which was his buddy, and Tommy was the guy that sort of ran the bets between him and another guy named uh, Batista – 
And this is all documented now in a movie. It's a feature film motion picture starting November 1 in 1,000 theaters nationwide, produced by a friend of mine, Paul Martino, who's the cousin of Tommy, who is on the panel talking about how the movie got made. So let's, without further ado, let's get into the panel. Let's hear from Tim Donahue and others. My first question got into Tim Donahue and getting paid for the information he was providing to the book, the bookmakers. So my first question to Tim was, how much was he getting paid per bet while making these bets while he was refereeing NBA games? He set it up that it was $2,000 per correct pick, and whether won or lost, you know, I was supposed to get $2,000. I think we, our record was something like 35 and 7 or th- like 35 and 8 and because of what he was doing on the side, it should have all worked out, and you know, it just it just didn't because he kept online poker and different yeah. things and, and lost a lot of the money that he, he should have won. Okay, I then moved to Paul Martino, the producer of the movie, a venture capitalist who's been involved in a lot of things. I knew him from being involved with FanDuel. He's on the original board for FanDuel. I asked Paul who he was. Tell us a little about himself and how he got into the movie. So Tommy's my first cousin. Our dads are brothers. Um, my day jobs, I run a venture capital firm. I invest in a lot of companies in sports, gaming, and gambling. I've worked with a lot of professional athletes as backers of my companies. was on the board of FanDuel for five years, was the first U.S. investor. And uh, when I was involved in one of the companies, my dad called me up. He says, your cousin Tommy's under a federal wiretap. Don't answer the phone. And the next morning, I read ESPN's front page, and it said, referee Tim Donahue under investigation. And it didn't take rocket science to figure out that those two things were related. These two guys have been best friends since I was born. They're both older than me. They've been best friends since. So I was like, okay. We we don't look it, but we are. (laughs) (laughs) So so four years went by. These guys were incarcerated. You, You might talk about that when we get to that. These guys went, they didn't put them in no country clubs. Um, you know, the league was out to make sure that there was an example of these guys. And after four years, Tommy got out. Tommy's trying to get back on his feet, and he got offered a life rights deal from a third party. And it was one of the, it was one of the most egregious contracts I had ever read. I mean, they were, if, if anyone was trying to take advantage of you, it was these guys. And so I said, Tommy, I'll buy your life rights. I mean, it's literally just like a favor. You know, throw the guy a couple bucks, get him on his feet. And... A couple lucky breaks happened, including running into an old friend who was from Haverford who uh, beat Kobe Bryant twice when he was on Lower Marion, a guy named Andy Callahan, who's a burgeoning screenwriter who went to school with the two guys who wrote The Hangover. So I said, Andy, you want to meet my cousin? And the two of them spent two years on the phone going back and forth, and then we had a script. And then the ball started rolling, and we're like, oh, my God, maybe, maybe we'll actually make a movie out of this thing. I then asked Tim, as this movie was being made, and and Tommy too, how did they feel about this movie being made, about what they were doing, about this whole scheme they were running in great detail? How did they feel about this movie being made? Um, I was approached a lot about you know movies being done, but I was kind of um, you know sensitive about the whole thing because it was really hard on my family and. Uh, it's going to be hard to relive it. It was hard to relive it last night. It was hard to, um, you know, see uh, the pain that it caused so many people. So it's tough to, um, you know, continue to 
have the story coming back up even though it's 10 years old. So, uh, you know, unfortunately I've just come to the realization that it's, it's a part of my life and, and what I did, and it's not easy, but, you know, you get through it. I then asked Tim about his relationship with his dad, uh, Tim's father, a referee as well, college, how he got into it, how did he get into refing, how much his father helped, how, how that was important to him. This was a theme of the movie, The Father's Son. I asked him about that. My father was um, one of the top college basketball referees for about 25 years in this area, did the final four for three straight years. So when I graduated from Villanova, I had a couple of different jobs and didn't like any of them. I had started refereeing, and my mom said at the kitchen table one night, you know, why don't you pursue a career as an NBA referee? And I thought, wow, could I really do that? I made a couple phone calls, sent a couple letters. Next thing I know, I was out in California uh, at a couple summer leagues, and I got chosen to be in the CBA, which was at the time the minor leagues of the NBA. And from there, they were looking for younger referees, and I was hired at the age of 26. Running up and down the floor with Michael Jordan and Shaquille O'Neal and Kobe Bryant, you know, on the top of the world. What was your like apprenticeship in the CBA? How long? Like I was three years in the in the CBA, um, full time, making a hundred dollars a game and giving twenty dollars a day for food. So <laughs> there was no you know glamorous life at that time. There was a lot of us, and I think there was twenty five of us. And out of my class, three of us were hired. So it's, uh, it was a lot of hard work and a lot of, um, you know, faith that you were going to work hard and, and be that person that they chose. So I was fortunate to be one of those people. Then I asked about, you know, any personal vendetta that he saw referees have with players. And he spoke very truthfully, honestly, and candidly about that. And then I asked specifically about owners. He mentioned specifically Mark Cuban who was an owner that's kind of drew the wrath of referees and explains why. So all of that is here in his answers. In the NBA, everyone knows that, um, you know, the best thing for the league is for a series to go seven games. After the, the fourth game of an NBA series, I think it's something like $20 million for each additional game. So what they would do with the referees is they would sit you in a, a locker room at 11 o'clock in the morning, the day of the game, and go over film of the previous game, and they would tell you that they want you to concentrate on certain things that night. Maybe Yao Ming was traveling in the post and they wanted you to concentrate on that. Maybe Kobe Bryant was moving his pivot foot. They would show you play after play after play, and it always was for that um, team that was down in the series, seemed like they were going to get the advantage of the calls of what the league wanted you to concentrate that night, and that would kind of help string the playoff series out the four five and sometimes six and seven games, which would generate a lot more money for the league office. And that was other stuff that I used in picking these games, knowing when teams were going to put at an advantage or a disadvantage. And you even talked about personal vendettas about players. and Sure, there were times with with referees where, um, you know, you had controversy with certain players. I had problems with Rashid Wallace, and one night he waited for me out in the parking lot and wanted to fist fight me. So um, stuff like that, when you didn't get along with a player, or if you did get along with a player, um, you know, uh, it spilled out onto the floor. I know when a lot of the Villanova guys were on the floor, I would make small talk with them and say, you know, if you talk to Father Rob, and, and we'd laugh and joke around. You know, at times, you know, you'd find yourself maybe giving them 
you know, not making up calls, but giving them, you know, the call that they deserve where you might let that go in the flow of a game. So just relationships really played a role, both positive and negative, uh, within the referees out on the floor. And then what about ownership? You talked about, I think at your, when you were in the league, kind of a new owner was Mark Cuban, and he had done things that no owners were doing before. When Mark came into the league, he really wanted to hold the referees accountable because he saw all these things that I kind of just threw out at you. And he wanted the rules to be enforced as they were written in the rule book and no deviations from it. So everybody was on a, a fair playing field. He wanted the referees to improve and, and get better. And he had the league institute, um, you know, us all with laptops and, and make us break down game tape after the games. And a lot of the older guys were used to just going to the bar and, and drinking until they woke up the next day and got on the flight for the next game. And, you know, some of the older guys despised them and hated them to the point where, you know, they would, you know, taunt them during games and do certain things to them that maybe have them removed from the games. And, um, you know, it's just uh, another example how uh, relationships, positive and negative, you know, could influence the, the outcome of the spreads of games. I then asked the, the group sort of so, you know, in terms of getting caught. So what tipped off the FBI? Here were their answers. Timmy and I didn't know this for the longest time. So for 12 years, we had no idea how we really got caught. And it came out in a recent ESPN article that Batista, the guy with the organized crime connections, he, of course, he was in debt for $7.5 million. So he went, took this guy with the in the Gambino crime family. His name was Popeye. He passed away recently. He took him to a Yankees-Phillies game. And he said, listen, I'll get your money back. I got an NBA ref in my hip pocket, and his name is Tim Donaghy. Allegedly, they had a mole in Gambino crime family. This guy Popeye told somebody, and it leaked to the FBI. And so we got caught. They were investigating the Gambino crime family. They got lucky. They caught a wiretap where this guy said, got a referee in my hip pocket, and his name is Tim Donaghy. Okay, and in these series of answers, I asked Tommy Martino, Tim's buddy, and Tim about their time in jail in terms of how they survived, what went on in jail, really candid, frank, and honest, and frankly, startling answers about where they were. They're both in different places and how they survived, how they got through the time they spent in lockup, in jail. So interesting answers here. What was your sentence? A year and a day. Where'd you spend it? Brooklyn, MDC Brooklyn. I spent it where that guy Epstein hung himself. And I got thrown in the hole for 30 days where he was. And I know why he hung himself. Because I thought of it. If you don't kill yourself, they try to kill you in there. They torture you. I was in a bad place. You guys don't want to go there. So I did hard time. Do you think you were tortured more because of what you did or just everyone there is? I remember the warden come up. You know, I was like, get, get me the warden, get me the warden, get me the warden. Every day I was panicking. I was losing my hair. I had atrophy. You say you lost. I lost 50 pounds. I was down to 127 pounds. 
but I kept asking for the warden, and then he came to my, finally, he, the warden visits the hole once a week. I got thrown in the hole, which is another story. It's in my book. But I got thrown in the hole, and... Uh, What's the hole? So the hole is, a, they call it the special housing unit. It's called the shoe. It's where they send you to protect you, but it's horseshit because... Solitary confinement. Solitary confinement. Yeah, you, you're, you go there, they ain't protecting you. I mean, I saw two people get hauled out on a gurney that died in there while I was in there. And every once, and one guy was dead for like eight hours. So what they did was it, they got in trouble. They got, they got their wrists, a slap on the wrist. So they had to go to everybody's cell once in every two hours, shine a flashlight in, and you had to move to make sure you were still alive. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I forget the question, but I hope I answered it. <laughs> I mean, we're, okay, yeah. What was the question, Andrew? How did, so it how was did, tough. How was it making through the year? What what drove you? What family? So yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, my family. Uh, you know, I I hurt my fa- family in the process. I wanted to get out. I knew I could do it. That's what it was. So the warden came to my cell. Finally got him in my cell. Yeah, he was doing it to torture me. So he came to my cell, and, and I said, and I jumped off my uh, cot, and I and I said, I said, listen, I don't give a shit. Here's what happened. He said, hold up, Martino. He goes, I know more about you than you do. He goes, you stressing, Martino? And I said, am I stressing? He goes, yeah, you stressing, Martino? I said, holy shit, to myself. I said, yeah, they got, they, they're they're trying to do this to me. So he didn't listen to me. He didn't give a shit what I had to say. So I knew right then and there that I had to compartmentalize. I knew if I was going to get out of that hole, I had to change the way I was thinking. So I changed my whole way of thinking. And I remember the next week when he came by, I jumped up on my bunk. And I sat there, I crossed my legs. I had a book that was half ripped off. Didn't even have the ending to it. So I jumped up and I was like relaxing. And he said, walk by, he said, hey, Martina, are you stressing? I said, nope, I'm doing good. But I was stressing, but it was tough. Yeah, they were trying to torture me in there. They, they were trying, because I didn't give them what they wanted, even though I proffered, they were trying to put the screws to me. And Tim, where were you? Florida? I was in uh, Pensacola. I was in Hernando County Jail. Um, I was in a couple different places. Uh, I was actually violated from the halfway house and, and thrown back in jail into solitary confinement for supposedly being somewhere I didn't have permission to be. So once once you're in that system, it's it's tough to get out no matter who you are or who you know. You're, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's tough. How were you treated? Not good. I was uh, attacked by somebody who claimed to be associated with the Gambino crime family, took a paint roller to my knee. Uh, two operations later, it's still not you know, where it should be, so um, I think it was flashed all over the TV that I was a cooperating witness for the government, not the label that you want when you're going into federal prison. So you're you know, quickly labeled a rat, and even though 60, 70 percent of the people in there cooperated, really nobody knows, but since mine was front page news, everybody knew, so you know, it was difficult. I asked about the movie themselves. There were actors that played them, of course, the actors being 
portraying Tim Donahue and Tommy Martino asks, what do they think of the actors portraying them? I think the actors did a great job. I think Will Sasso, who plays Batista, I think he should get nominated for some type of an award. I think um, so when, right. you, when you talk about the two guys playing you, it's tough to really say they did a good job because you're so embarrassed that the story's being retold. So, But they, they all did a good job in my mind. I agree. I think maybe it's did a good job with Donaghy. Arthur did a great job as my dad. Yeah. yeah. I think he killed it. And my girlfriend, Stephanie, Lindsay Morgan, she was great. And in this series of questions, I asked, and, and the interesting answer is about with legal sports betting now, how would that affect things? Would things have been different with sports legalization, uh, sports betting legalization like we have today? I asked them about that. And I also asked about Tim and any specific games or calls, and he did talk about a 2007 Suns-Spurs playoff game here. I remember I refereed game three. It was in San Antonio. It was actually uh, uh, the last playoff game I refereed that year. And, um, you know, I write about this in the book at length, that specific game and that specific series. We had a group supervisor. His name was Tommy Nunez. He was from Phoenix. He didn't like Robert Starver, who was the Phoenix owner. He loved San Antonio, the nightlife in San Antonio, and um, he was the supervisor of that entire series, and he was going over the game film, showing you what to concentrate on and what to call, and everything was supposed to go against Phoenix and go against San Antonio because he wanted San Antonio to advance because he wanted to go back and get away from his wife and go to San Antonio for the next series. So that was, uh, you know, one of the things I write about in the book at length of how, you know, different people in different situations influence, you know, different games. I then asked him about any players that stood out. One, especially he taught, liked to talk about Rashid Wallace and any other favorite players he enjoyed refing. And it's funny because I did have many, many problems with him uh, on the floors, as a lot of the referees did, but um, at times I could, you know, as Father Rob will attest to, I can be a little bit of a smart aleck. Uh, and sarcastic, and um, there was a situation where they were winning by 20 points, and he took the ball, and my partner made a call, and he bounced the ball so that it hit him in his backside as he turned around and reported the foul. So I hit him with a technical foul, and he started screaming and yelling at me. I started screaming and yelling back at him, and he, he wanted to fight me in, in the parking lot uh, after the game, and, and uh, it was a situation where I stood there and acted like I wasn't scared, but... You know, I definitely was <laughs> uh, not thinking it was going to end well if he hit me. <laughs> so, um, you know, with that being said, after this whole scandal went down, I was on a radio show with him, and uh, he came up to me and he said, listen, I know we had our problems on the floor. I just want you to know as a professional athlete, you know, you, you turn into a different person when you step between those lines and your competitive nature is just through the roof, he, he says, I really hope that you recover from this and, and you and your family are doing well, which really, you know, meant a lot. Yeah. Any favorite players? Um, definitely, definitely David Robinson. Um, I'll never forget one of my first games in the league. Um, I got caught in, in a stack and didn't see the play good. and He got hit right across the arm and I didn't blow the whistle. It was a timeout. And he came up to me and says, what, what, what are you looking at? 
he just came hit right across the arm. You, you didn't call foul. I said, you know what? I, I got caught in a bad position and I didn't see it. He goes, you know what? Don't worry about it. You'll get the next one. So, you know, when, when somebody does that and kind of lets you off the hook like that, you remember their professionalism um, that they showed to you. So, uh, you know, when, when you know you ever thought that somebody like that got fouled before, you weren't sure you were, you were giving them the benefit of the call. I then asked Tim, what his life is like now, here in 2019? What is Tim Donahue's life? What's his day-to-day like? You know, I'm involved uh, right now. I got, I got lucky when I got out of jail. Um, I had had a little bit of money. I was going to get involved in a 7-Eleven with a guy, and he owned one and was waiting to get approved for another one. And thank God he never did. And um, I never got involved in a 7-Eleven, but he said to me at the at the time of the real estate crash, I'm, I'm killing real estate. I said, to him, real estate? What are you kidding me? Nobody's buying real estate. There's 15 houses for sale on every street. And he brought me in a house that was for sale for $60,000. And I looked around at it and I said, oh my God, what, what the heck did I do to my life? I'm looking at this $60,000 house that is run down and, and you know, I would never live in it. He says, you don't buy it today, I'm buying it tomorrow. So I bought it. You know, did some work to it. I had 15 people knocking on the door wanting to rent. And this was back in, in 2009. And with that, I, I got one. And, uh, you know, a couple months later, I got another one. So now I'm basically a landlord and, and we have properties. He has a lot of properties. And, and I, you know, just go, you know, day to day, fix some little things. Uh, at a lot of these properties, I, I never had a screwdriver or a drill. But now I, can go to Home Depot and pretty much buy anything and, and fix it in any property that needs to be fixed. I got back to specific calls. Uh, I know he, we talked about that Suns-Spurs playoff game, but I asked him specifically, was there any particularly egregious call that he could remember making? Here was his answer. I don't think there's, um, as I, I said in the book and, and the FBI agent uh, you know, confirmed this, I never went out. Uh, in a game and, and made a call to make sure any bet won. I mean, as a referee in the NBA, it's a fast-paced game, and you're going to miss calls from time to time. And I certainly, you know, was was somebody that missed calls, but I never went out and, and, and purposely made a call in a game to affect any of these, these point spreads. I asked about restitution. That was part of their deal that they made with the feds in their sentences. And restitution is an interesting concept in terms of paying back money. There's the interesting answers they had about restitution and their third running mate, uh, Batista. Interesting answer about restitution. The restitution, like I said, was it went down to two hundred twenty-five thousand dollars joint and several, and um, they came to me probably three years after we were all out of jail. I think we were all paying um, monthly, Tommy and I, and Batista wasn't paying, and. Um, you know, I, I was working in the rental business, and my attorney said that they wanted to put me uh, under oath and question me about what I was doing with the sports picks, the, the landlord business, and, um, you know, just question me again. And, and, and I said, oh, well, if I have to do it, I have to do it. And he said, listen, I don't think you get this. They're, they would love nothing more than to put you back in jail. Is there any way you can pay off the restitution? And I said, um... Well, let me call Tommy and Batista and see if we can all put up our share and be done with this. So Tommy said um, he couldn't put up a share, but if I paid his share, he would pay me back. Batista said, 
I have a lien on my house, and if you pay it, uh, we'll be able to sell my house. I'm going through a divorce. I'll give you your money right away. So I let them take my pension <coughs> and pay off the restitution to avoid me being put, uh, you know, up in front of a, a grand jury and questioned again just about anything I was doing. The end. The government took your NBA pension. Right. Um, Valued at? At the time, it was, um, what was left was probably 300000 My ex-wife got two-thirds. It was, uh, and she had taken that. So I had about 300000 left. So they took it to cover the rest of the restitution. Um, and we were, we were done. We were out of it. <coughs> Tommy's paid, you know, like he said he was going to pay. And, and Batista had to sue because he reneged on the deal. Um, that, that, you know, he signed that he was going to take care of and, and now he pays month by month to, you know, pay off his portion of it. I then asked him to talk about the malice at the palace. Remember that with Ron Artest and others, uh, where the f- players went into the stands, the, the mess it was up in Detroit. That was a Tim Donahue game. Here's what he said about it. Yeah, that was probably, you know, one of the scariest, uh, situations I was ever in. Um, game was over. Ron Artest uh, had fouled somebody near the end, and, and even though the game was over, he was at that point in his career where he was taunting a lot of people and playing a physical game, and just went over and sat near the bench, and, and somebody from the stands threw something at him, and he just, you know, went up into the stands after him, and a lot of the players followed, and the fans and, and, and the players were, were fighting like crazy and throwing stuff, so. Uh, I think there was like 20 or 30 seconds left in the game, and we, we couldn't play the rest of the game. It was the first time in the history of the NBA a game like that got canceled over something like that. So just, uh, you know, a, a, a tough situation to, to be out on the floor and, and see all these fights breaking out between, uh, you know, the fans and then the players. And, you know, we're lucky that really nobody really got seriously hurt because I remember Jermaine O'Neal, I don't know if you know him as a player, he's about seven foot tall. You know, no fat on him at all. This this guy walked out on the floor and stood up to, to fight him, and Jermaine O'Neal punched him right, knocked him out. If it wasn't for the floor being so wet and everybody throwing stuff, his back foot slipped out, so he really didn't get a, a solid punch on him, although he knocked the guy out cold. I think the guy probably would have been dead if, you know, he had some footing. And this question was about Tim talking about refs that sort of got the message implicitly, not explicitly from the NBA, that they wanted them to sort of call things different ways or kind of gave them tapes to look at of things that were happening with the implicit message they should happen a different way. I asked him, did any of the refs resist when the NBA subtly suggested they do things? And what happened with that? Here was his answer. No, because as a referee, um, you know, you wanted to advance up the ladder. And if you refereed in the first round, you were given a $25,000 bonus. The second round, a $50,000 bonus. The third round, seventy-five, up to $100,000 if you made the NBA Finals. So, you know, just like in any job, you're going to listen to what your boss tells you to do and how to do it to, to look like uh, you're the best at what you do and, and you want to provide for your family and make as much money as possible. So it, it wasn't that we thought that we were doing anything wrong. We were doing what the league told us to do. And finally, Paul Martino talks about the movie at the end, coming out again as you listen to this probably right now, November 1st, coming out, the movie Inside Game on the story of Tim Donaghy. Paul Martino, producer, talked about it here. I will uh, 
say the one following thing that's surprising, disappointed we didn't get any questions from any of the women in the audience, because it turns out when our test screenings, some of our highest scores were from women because they were surprised how much the film focused on the effect it had on the family relationships. There's a lot of stuff between Tommy and his dad and a lot of stuff between Tim and his dad. Some very emotional and tough stuff. You've seen the film. And much to our surprise, having made the film, those were some of our highest scores. So if, even if you aren't a sports junkie, you might find this a very interesting human story about what can happen when you make bad decisions and get in over your head. So that's it. Those were the questions that, that I thought were most interesting to my listeners about the Tim Donahue movie out, Inside Game, November 1st. Really some startling and frank and candid answers from Tim and, and his buddy and hearing from Paul Martino, the producer of the movie, uh, that's been a venture capital guy, very successful, that I've known for a while. Hope you enjoyed it. And finally, a word from our sponsor, betonline.ag, your online sports book experts. It's all going on now. You know it. NFL, college football, World Series just ended, but we got some huge NFL matchups this week. Of course, the Packers, my Packers at the Chargers. That'll be a home game in L.A., Lambeau Field West. Detroit, Oakland, Minnesota, Kansas City. College football is really heating up with Oregon SC, Georgia, Florida, of course, Utah, Washington, Miami, Florida State. All this going on at betonline.ag. Don't forget that promo code PODCAST1 for your 50% sign-up bonus. Betonline.ag, your online sportsbook experts. And that'll do it for this week's special edition of The Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. Special edition with Tim Donahue and the movie Inside Game coming out. Really frank and startling conversation. Really appreciate my producer extraordinaire, Brian Neal, interstitial music provided by the one and only Sam Brandt. Follow me on Twitter at Andrew Brandt, and any uh, comments, rankings at Apple Podcasts are truly appreciated. And I'll be back next week with another edition of The Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt.